Hello, community. This is Shonda Smith-Baker, and I am back with the relaunch of Conversations with Shonda. I am so excited to bring this new episode to you with Isabel Wilkerson. After a 30-day hiatus, the Conversations with Shonda podcast has moved from the Minneapolis Foundation to be under the ownership of me, Shonda Smith-Baker. It is an exciting time for me in this transition. I would love it if you would continue to be a listener of the podcast, download, listen, like, and lead a review. And now for the conversation with Isabel Wilkerson, the author of Warmth of Other Sons and Cast. Please enjoy. You're listening to Conversations with Shonda, a podcast that unpacks the community's grittiest, most vexing problems, hosted by Shonda Smith-Baker. Welcome, Ms. Wilkerson, to Conversations with Shonda. I am grateful for you in so many ways, although we are just now meeting. Your presence has certainly been felt um, in my home, across this community, in this nation, with your writing that has really opened up uh, people's hearts, minds, and hopefully changed actions as they navigate this place we call America. Well, it's such a pleasure to be here with you. I am so thrilled to be in conversation. This is such an important topic. Um, It's really the topic that our country's facing and and needs to address. What was the path that led you to writing CAST? You know, it started with my first book, The Warmth of Other Sons. Uh, That was about the out-migration, the exodus, really, of six million African-Americans from the Jim Crow South to the rest of the country, including Minneapolis. The Great Migration was, you know, a sea change in our country's history that's under-recognized. And so I devoted so much of my time to that. I spent 15 years on it. So I often say if it were a human being, it'd be in high school and dating. That's how long I took to to tell that story. And, you know, it was such a, a massive shift in our country that I think we're still reckoning with what that meant. And one of the people who grew out of the Great Migration, that a lot of people would not connect to the Great Migration, but we might not even know his name is Prince, because his his mother and his father were both musicians, and they were from uh, they were both from Louisiana, but they had arrived at different times. They might not have met if they hadn't uh, arrived to Minneapolis. So the Great Migration is what I devoted so much of my time to. And in understanding the Great Migration, you have to first figure out, well, why would six million people defect that part of the country? Why would six million people seek political asylum within the borders of their own country? Why did they feel the need to flee? And one of the, you know, one of the things that I had to explore with the Warmth of Sons is what were the conditions that they were forced to flee? And, and it was a, a, a world in which it was a, you know, Jim Crow was a world in which it was against the law for a black person and a white person to merely play checkers together in Birmingham. You could go to jail if you were caught playing checkers with a person of a different race. It was a world that was so constrained and so specific that in courtrooms throughout the South, there was actually a black Bible and an altogether separate white Bible to swear to tell the truth on in court. The very word of God was segregated in the Jim Crow South. The same sacred object could not be touched by hands of different races. Now that level of specificity, that level of control, and in some ways fixation with purity of the one group versus the potential pollution from the group that had been subjugated is actually a hallmark of of the concept known as caste which we connect to India and to other parts of the world, but actually it was replicated here as well, but we don't think of it that way. And so I was writing about that in The Warmth of the Sons. I use the language of caste uh, and throughout that book. Then, then afterward, I just realized, and after it was out in the world and I was talking about it, and then so many things were happening in our era, you know, with the, you know, the, the killing of Trayvon Martin and so many of the, you know, the, the videos that we have seen that have shown that almost anything could be done to people who have been essentially assigned at the very bottom of the hierarchy in our country, and that we're still seeing this going on in our era. And I just thought, let me go look more deeply at this. Let me look more deeply at what is going on here. And that's what led me to looking at CAST, The Origins of Our Discontents, that book. I have uh, two thoughts. One is somewhat personal in that my grandmother was part of that migration from Arkansas to Minnesota, and um, as many of us were. She was born in 1915. Oh, wow. I know. I often say it's the very same year that the Minneapolis Foundation and many institutions were birthed. There were people in this country um, suffering greatly 
And she migrated here, but never would talk to us really about what happened, where she was from. It was too painful. Absolutely. That's one of the things that I, you know, I spent all those years listening to stories, sitting at the knee of the elders who were part of this massive movement. And it took a long time for the reason it took so long is because it took a long time for them to talk about it and to feel comfortable talking about it because they had experienced post-traumatic stress. I mean, you know, when people say that, you know, that black people are trying to play a particular kind of card, I would say the exact opposite. They did not want to talk about it. They were not trying to pull up the things that they had endured because it was just too painful. They didn't even tell their own children and grandchildren about what they had endured. And so that's why it took so long. Um, it took a, uh, took a ways uh, for them to begin to uh, open up and to reveal that which they'd experienced. And in fact, in writing that book, some of the very worst experiences, some of the worst, most heinous acts that, that occurred in that era were not from the people that I talked to. They were in the written record. The people who did these things to what I call the subordinated group, the people who were forced to be at the very bottom, they were proud of what they did. When it came to those lynchings and other things, they were, one reason we know about them is because they recorded it. They would, when, when there was gonna be a lynching, they would advertise in the newspapers that people were coming in from multiple states. Sometimes there would be thousands of people gathering to see horrific things done to uh, to people of African descent for far longer than we would imagine. And so uh, that's, that's you know, to affirm what you were saying about your ancestors, they did not talk about it because it was too painful. And so they were committing heinous crimes in a carnival-like environment. Celebratory. Celebratory. They even had, they had photographers there and you could get your picture taken uh, at that event. And um, they had postcards that they would send out from those. I mean, it was, you know, this is a part of our country's history that is very difficult to reconcile. It's, it's hard to hear no matter where you might be in our society. And yet this is our inheritance. We, if we, you know, often describe our country as being like an old house. And when you take possession of an old house, you know, you may not want to go in the basement after a storm, but if you don't go into the basement after that storm, it's it, it it's not as if you are avoiding that which is going on. You merely don't know about it, and ignorance is no protection from the consequences of inaction. And so we we have inherited this history. We are living with this history. Uh, we are living with the after effects of this history. So that no matter what is going on, we might as well know because it's better to know so we can begin to address it. So if I go along the thread of like my grandmother who, who wouldn't explicitly share the stories, but there are things that she did say, right? Or there's rules that, that she would present. There was guidance yeah. to keep me safe, to keep us safe, right? Whoever's in charge makes the rules, don't rock the boat, do what you're told, you know, all these things, right? Um, that were informing from where she came from, that there's a way in which you navigate the world that allows you to be safe. Those were messages that have been passed on. But if you think about it, those are rules that keep you safe because there's an awareness that there's an, a structure that could endanger you, that it is not just an individual who might do harm to you, but it's an entire structure. It's an infrastructure in which we live, which is really what caste is. I mean, if you think about caste, the apparatus that you put on your arm when there's a broken bone. You know, it's a cast to keep in a fixed place, to keep those things in a fixed place. You think about a play in which there's someone stage right, stage left, in the foreground or the background, and everyone has to stay in their place. Everyone knows their place. Everyone knows what the rules are. The rules are the script that everyone is, is reading from and they know what they're supposed to be doing. And so if you have someone who's in the chorus who then steps out into the front and the spotlight, well, everybody knows that's not supposed to happen. That's not what you're supposed to do. So the ancestors and the elders were telling the children that essentially they were saying, we live in a world in which there are things that you can and cannot do. And it's based upon the group that we are part of. And in order to stay safe, you must stay within the lines that have been drawn for you. And that's essentially what a caste system is. So in some ways it's being passed down um, on all sides, now, anybody who's in that caste system, that means that people who are assigned to the very top of the caste system, they know the rules and they know what that they can do certain things. They, they have been programmed without even, it doesn't even have to be said. They know the kinds of things that 
are expected or that, that, that they can do, the kind of prerogatives that are theirs and presumably theirs alone. Whereas, uh, you know, those who are assigned at the very bottom, which is what African-Americans have been since the time of the arrival, you know, at the beginning of enslavement, we have had to learn the rules of what we can and cannot do, and it's passed down through the generations. This is not to say that they that the ancestors were telling us to be small. It's just that they were trying to tell us to be safe so we could live necessary for generations upon generations. Yeah. What about uh, those that were there uh, when those lynchings occurred, right? There's the other side of it. Like what generationally happens to those that grew up witnessing those events, understanding living in the Jim Crow South? Like how does that sort of metabolize over generations in the same way of just just knowing that they then get to make the rules? Or how does that how does that play out? Well, what it does is it affirms the presumed primacy. Of, of anyone in that group without even having to say it. And it's just, it's a, I mean, I remember in, um, in researching work of the sons and I came across this uh, newspaper article about, you know, one of the lynchings and one father had his three-year-old son uh, with him and he had his three-year-old son on his shoulders so he could see what was going on. He said, my son can't learn too soon. My son cannot learn too soon. So this was all part of the indoctrination uh, the uh, education, the programming of those who were born to a group that from the very beginning of the founding of the country was, uh, uh, was presumed to be at the very top, assumed to be entitled to be at the very top. These are all arbitrary assignments based upon you know, who had the power at the time the country was founded. These were the people who were the colonists and those who looked like the colonists, others from Europe who came to this country and, and created a whole new group of people who never needed to exist before. I mean, the idea of being white versus being black, that had not, that's a fairly new concept in human history. I mean, human history goes back for, you know, millennia, but the idea of race as we know it is a fairly new one that goes back to the transatlantic slave trade. So before that time, people were, were essentially uh, restricted to the parts of the world that their people had been for millennia. So that in Europe, there was no need for them to describe themselves as white because they would identify themselves as Irish or as Scottish or as Polish or as, as Bulgarian, whatever they were. But they did not need to identify themselves as white. It was only when you come to this, you know, what was then considered the new world, a new country in which people were then creating a new hierarchy that had never needed to exist before in this form, and, and then bringing in uh, Africans to build the country for free. And, and that, that thus means that you're creating a hierarchy based upon what people look like. And, and then, that, that, so this idea, I just wanna often say that this is fairly new. This is a social construct that did not have a reason to exist until there was the imperative to building a country very rapidly and to extract the wealth and to, to create a world and the world that they created is one that we're still living with the after effects of. And so one of the ways that they did this was to justify the diminishment and subjugation of those who were assigned to the very bottom, those who were assigned to be enslaved, by suggesting that they were inferior in terms of intelligence, that they were inferior in terms of their uh, uh, their uh, beauty, that they were inferior in terms of their ability to be uh um, uh, responsible. All of these things that they created, these were these were uh, assumptions and stereotypes that were applied. They also used religion as a way to to justify it. You know, they used the idea, the story of Noah and his three sons, and how um, his, you know how uh, Ham was the one who had broken a rule of seeing his, his father naked, and so therefore he was viewed as the the one who was to be, his, his heirs were to be enslaved by the other. So all of these things were used. We have to recognize what is it that we've inherited? Why is it that we see the divisions that we have? What is the effect that this is having on us? And how is it that this has been used to divide us artificially? And that we, if we can see it, perhaps we can be able to find a way to transcend it. So if we could, can we go through some definitions? Because I, because I, I think it will lead into the next question that I, I'm, I'm curious on. So the difference between race, class, and caste. Yes. 
because I think we use them interchangeably. And I think cast largely due to your book, I think is, is a relatively new concept for us here in America. Can you just help us understand the difference between the three? Well, caste is the ancient uh, uh, concept of hierarchy and division that goes back for millennia. It is the oldest of all of these possible um, forms of, of dividing people up. And, you know, caste essentially is an artificial, arbitrary, graded ranking of human value in society. It's what determines one's standing, respect, benefit of the doubt, access to resources or assumptions of, of competence uh, through no fault of anyone, but just due to the due to the assignment, the artificial arbitrary assignment of one group being presumably above another. And also there's ranking, there, there's one, there's groups at the top and then there's groups at the very bottom and there are those in, in between. And uh, so this is essentially the art, the infrastructure of division that goes back for millennia. It is the oldest form of, of human division. So that's the basis of it. And then when you have a caste system, you can use any number of metrics in order to divide and to rank people. You could use, uh, you could use, religion, you could use uh, language, you could use uh, immigrant status. In our country, the, the form, the, the tool, the metric that the colonists chose to use to divide and to rank people was what people look like um, in a phenotype and color, meaning what we now consider to be markers of race. So race was what this particular hierarchy, this particular caste system, chose to use to divide and to rank people. And once you have chosen that and you start to find ways to justify that, often using some text, some, uh, you know, uh, often spiritual text as religious text is often used to, to justify it. Once you've done that, then people start to feel like it's primordial, that it is, it is almost in the water, that it's something that is, is uh, essential to being, uh, that, that it's, it's almost always been this way. And it, it, it's, it's something that is just, that's how powerful and profound and, and um, uh, you know, how in a way sneaky it can be because it, seem, it comes across as natural when in fact it is, it's man-made. Now, class is something that is, is an additional thing that is a form of, of recognizing or, or penalizing people on the basis of of, of, of yet another metric. And that would be the things that you can do to try to elevate yourself um, within, within any society. So class becomes in some ways, how I would describe it is caste is the bones and race is the skin, it's what we can see. And then class is like the clo clothing that you can put on yourself in order to, uh, to elevate, signal, uh, there are things that you can do in theory in a society. You can get education, you can you know, change your accent. There are certain things that you can do. And we associate that with class because that's the kind of thing that you, you have some control over. You don't have total control over because what you're born, you may born into a particular class. So it makes it harder for you to climb out of a class that is lower to begin with. But the thing about class is that it is a thing that you can, under many circumstances, you can change that. When it comes to caste and to race in our country, it's harder to change that. It's what you're born to. So when we have discussions around economic movement, right, the disparities that exist between groups relative to employment or, or economic status, what we're talking about really are two different things, right? We're talking about transcending class. But the other structures maintained. So in order for us to attack the disparity or the difference or to really move people into a place where they can reduce the gap, where we can achieve all the things um, that we imagine and hope for and invest in, we also need to think about how race and caste play into uh, that advancement. Yeah, a really good example of the difference between class Cast and race is the, and there are several, but one of them is an example of the uh, editor of British Vogue, who is a man of African descent, one of the best dressed, uh, successful men in the world, uh, Edward Enenpool. And he described a couple of years ago about how he was walking into his own building. Now, he's the editor of British Vogue. He walks into his own building, and the, uh, the security guard tells him he's going to have to use the freight elevator. He cannot use the main elevator that business people are to use in that building. He's directed to the freight elevator. You need to use a service elevator. Just because he's walking in now, he has achieved everything that presumably every 
one would seek to achieve in terms of class. You know, he's highly educated. He is the head of this entire company. He is well-dressed. He's, he's taking care of all of that. He's wealthy. He has all of that. And yet he's told to use the service elevator of his own building. Now, obviously it, it was taken care of and it was, you know, he dealt with it, but that means that this could happen in any circumstance. It means that that you could um, you could do all these things that presumably put you in a, in a higher class and still confront on a regular basis the actually actually life and death act, uh, uh, consequences of caste and in our country race being the, the metric that's used to determine what caste you're in. And that's the reason why you see uh, Forrest Whitaker, for example, you know, who won, he's an Academy Award winning actor. Um, and let me, let me emphasize that these things should not happen to anybody, regardless of their class or station in life. It should happen to nobody. None of these things should be happening to anyone. And yet he goes into, you know, a deli in, uh, in um, Manhattan and he just, he walks in and he decides he doesn't, he thought he might see something he wanted, but he didn't see anything. So he turned around to leave. And the, the staff there, they actually went to him and, uh, uh, and, uh, tackled him and put him to the ground because they thought he was had stolen something. Because he came in as a black man and didn't buy anything, he was, uh, he was uh, tackled and he was uh, spread down, on, you know, had people on top of him, uh, essentially accusing him of having, uh, you know, shoplifted. And this, that could have actually been extremely dangerous. I mean, he, he survived it, but had the police been called, had they not, you know, had they just been, uh, acting on impulse. He, it, it, could have, it could have ended very differently. This is what people live with day in and day out, regardless of whatever their class may be, because ultimately one of the, the, the factors that looms larger is the, the infrastructure of divisions and the ranked hierarchy that is signaled by what you look like, which is what we consider to be race. And that is the infrastructure. Even after you've taken care of all these other things, this is what's left. And, and of course, the most extreme example, of course, is what we saw happen to George Floyd. You know, no one to help him, no one to save him, his humanity stripped from him and his very life taken from him. And over what? It was over, again, these are the things that are, that are presumably mundane things that could literally mean a person's life. He was being accused of having presumably tried to pass a counterfeit $20 bill, which we learned at the trial of his killer was not even an arrestable offense. The chief of police said that it was something that would just generally be a citation and a court date. That means he should be alive today. He should be alive today. And then of course, what we're seeing now of people who are the, the, the young boy in uh, Kansas City who merely rang the doorbell of the wrong house and was shot on site as a result of that. These are, and this is a family that were an immigrant family from Liberia that was living in this, you know, what was they considered to be a nice neighborhood. Uh, he was being asked to just do what many, many, you know, teenagers would be asked to do is go pick up your younger siblings, very routine. And he ends up ultimately being shot and in the ICU as a result of these, this, these assumptions about people on the basis of what they look like. And so this is actually a matter of life and death. I mean, this is this is someone who was, and again, this should happen to no one. You, you should not have to be a perfect person to avoid this happening to you. But it so happened that this young man was a, he was in, you know, he was in the band and he was in orchestra and he won these awards for playing the saxophone. I mean, I'm sorry, the clarinet. And, um, and so, you know, you, it, what is it that it takes to protect you? What is it facing? What is it that we as a nation need to inspect and, and reconcile and atone for in order to save lives? This is a matter of life and death, which is one of the reasons that I wrote this, because the, you know, caste and race, com this combination, this toxic brew is literally a matter of life and death for people. How many times have we seen these? And one of the things I would say uh, about these cases is that in so many of these videos that we have seen, I think we need to interrogate ourselves as to the way we are consuming the, these videos. I mean, these we are seeing people in their final moments on this earth. We are seeing violence inflicted on people who've historically been held at the very bottom of the hierarchy from the very beginning. And we need to interrogate the ways in which that has been essentially commodified 
for our society to almost consume as if it's entertainment. Now, I know a lot of people would say I'm not looking at it as entertainment, but when you are looking at these things, what does that do to one's sense of, of the humanity of the people we're looking at? What message is it sending to us about who can, any, almost anything can be done to a particular group of people, which desensitizes us, numbs us to the violence against them. And then finally, when you see these videos, you see these videos time and time again, from Tamir Rice to, uh, to Tyree Nichols to George Floyd, when we see these cases, once the person is immobilized, a lot and not getting into the motivations of the, the uh, of the uh, attackers, but once the person is, mo mo is, is immobilized, what do we see? We then see we see nothing to save them. We see no CPR. We see no nothing done to help you know first aid administered to them. We even we do not even see basic human connection of consoling and comforting another member of one's own species in the final moments of their life. That means that the problem is far bigger than just, you know, policing and, you know, whatever the uh, EMTs are doing. This is a problem of humanity. This is a problem of one's connection to another member of one's own species. It's so much bigger than any one thing. And that's why it's so necessary for us to look deeply uh, at ourselves and at, at, our, at our country and our country's soul. Often people will refer to uh, George Floyd and others as what we witnessed was a public lynching. Yes. And so how racism has manifested over generations has evolved. It may not have presented itself um, with a hanging, um, but it has materialized in many ways um, that you just sort of articulated that we're still watching, that it's still subconsciously probably having the same impact? Absolutely. Because it's subconsciously saying that it desensitizes uh, us to the violence against the Black body. So that if you're desensitized to it, it's sending a signal to the brain that this is what you expect. This is, this is what happens. And you, you stop, the, the, the fear would be that you stop being shocked. Um, we, we, we can never lose our sense of shock at these things because this is, if you think the majority of human beings who've ever lived have not seen what we're seeing because they wouldn't, you know, unless you're on the battlefield or in an emergency room. So we're seeing people killed before our very eyes. We're seeing it videotaped, um, recorded, and then sent out, on, it's up on YouTube. So that these, these cases that we're seeing, these acts of violence are reaching much, much larger audiences than any lynching ever could have. Just think of and they're going out all over the world and sending the message about what can happen, what can be done uh, to people who have already been marginalized and held at the very bottom of, the, of, of our country's infrastructure from the very beginning. Something that I read in the book um, was something along the lines of slavery wasn't something that happened to Black people. Slavery was um, an American innovation. Can you say more about that? Because often it is about, well, it happened to you, it's over with, but that there's a disassociation from all of us being connected to what was slavery. Well, that's one of the reasons why I think that the current care that's being taken with language is really powerful. Um, because, you know, a lot of historians and others who have been thinking about these issues, we now tend to use the term enslaved flavor, because that reminds uh, us that this was not people who were just born to a condition, that these are people who were forced into a condition, forced into enslavement, and that there were people who were doing that. There were actors, there was an entire infrastructure of control over the people. So this was not, slavery is not about Black people. It's about the people who were in power who were enslaving them. And that change in perspective, which is a more accurate portrayal of what was going on, then brings everybody into the history in the way that we all should be in the history. So this is, you know, slavery is not about Black people, although the photograph, you know, the Im images are about that. But it, it, what it does is it, it erases the infrastructure the power structure and the 
the individuals and the um, and the entire apparatus that kept that institution in place. And we must remind ourselves, it was not just a short, sad chapter in our country's history. It went on for 246 years. That's a quarter of a millennium. That's 12 generations. And it, it went on for so long that no, no adult alive today will be alive at the point at which African-Americans will have been free for as long as African-Americans were enslaved. That will not happen until the year 2111. It won't be until the second decade of the 22nd century that African-Americans will have been free for as long as African-Americans were enslaved. That was occurring because of the infrastructure that was in place to hold people essentially hostage for a quarter of a millennium. And understanding our country means understanding how that could happen. What are the ways in which we are still living with the after effects of that? And, and essentially reconciling our history in a way that we haven't so that we can truly free ourselves. And you can't be free until you've recognized what, you know, where, where you've come from. Can you um, explain to us the term double consciousness? The double consciousness has to do with the ways in which if you are assigned at the very bottom and also W.B. Du Bois often, he actually was one of the first uh, black scholars to make reference to the term caste. I mean, he spoke about caste, used the term caste in his seminal book, Black Reconstruction. And um, he recognized that after the Civil War ended, there was an effort to essentially reestablish the power dynamic. They did not want to let go of what they, of all that they were accustomed to, the enslavers and the enslaving group, group did not want to let go of the power that they had. They did not want to let go of that structure. And so what they did was they recreated it after, after the end of reconstruction. And so what, what that ended up doing was it, um, it, replicated the same level of diminishment, subjugation, subordination through the Jim Crow laws. The, the double consciousness has to do with recognizing having to maneuver and manage through a system that subjugates you while recognizing that that actually is not who you are. <laughs> Knowing that that's not who you are. And it's sort of like what you were saying before about what the elders have taught children through the generations about how to survive. You have to survive by, as you said, you know, do what you're told, you know, go along with what they're saying. You need to be able to survive, to live another day and to create the next generation. That's how we've survived over the generations. And, and so the double consciousness means holding in your, in, in one body, holding in one consciousness, holding in one brain, one mind, the sense that when I go out into the world, I cannot, I, I cannot be what I really truly am. I have to keep it contained, I have to do what I'm told, I have to play a role. As I said, you know, like a cast and a play, I have to play a role. But when I'm, when I'm, if I'm really myself, I know that I'm smart, I know that I, I'm great at math, whatever it may be that you're good at. But I have to be very careful when I go out into the world because there could be dire consequences if I'm not. That's the same message. I mean, W.B. Du Bois was talking about that, and so have our, you know, our ancestors, which is how we survived. For those that are really in a moment, especially in our city, in, in Minneapolis, in our state, Minnesota, following George Floyd, we're coming up on the third anniversary of his, of his murder. It has shaken, I don't know if we've reckoned, but it certainly has shaken us to think differently about what is occurring around us. But I'm not sure that if, if so, if caste is sort of in the water, right? Like if it is the structure, how does one then identify something that's always been, right? Like what, what is the exercise of identifying and acting? Like what, what, what should we be doing or thinking about or recognizing or what, what do we do if, if it's in the water? Well, one of the reasons that I think CAS is useful is because when you're having a conversation about these issues, one of the things that shuts down conversation with even the most um, presumably open-minded person from what I call the dominant CAS is the idea of 
bringing in racism and trying to call people into account for actions, uh, for behavior, for statements that are hurtful to the marginalized group. And once you bring in that word, then all conversation shuts down. People become defensive. They don't want to talk about it. They say, I'm not. They'll start talking about, you know, that they have um, people of color. (laughs) I got friends like you. (laughs) They got friends. They have, they might have, you know, uh, a nephew who's biracial. You know, that's what people start doing. So they start to shut down and start to um, to be defensive and you, you can't get any further. The idea of caste is, um, is one that is not about feelings. It doesn't, it's not about guilt and shame and blame. Now that's not to suggest that racism, if you're having an honest conversation about racism, it shouldn't either, but it's come to be, this is where we are. If you're trying to have a conversation, if you're trying to move this forward, if you're trying to reach people and to get them to recognize what is actually going on, you need to be able to have, I believe we need to have language that people, that allows them space to hear what is going on. And, uh, and so, and because caste is an ancient concept that does apply to us, it, it, people may not wish to hear it. It's the kind of thing that um, people, that sounds new, but it actually is quite old. And that um, such people as W.B. Du Bois and Martin Luther King and also anthropologists who went into the Jim Crow South and studied the Jim Crow South when it was at its height, they actually risked their lives to do so because they had to act in accord with it. Then they have emerged using this language, then maybe there's something that it can teach us. Because what it does is it, 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 it takes away the idea of the personal and suggests that we have all been programmed with the script that we have been trained in. And if you recognize that there's a script that you've been trained in, then you can see how this could be, this could be operating within one's own self and within the society at large. Almost as like, the, I often have, have this description of it's almost like we're puppets, you know, who, you know, the, the, the master puppeteer, which is sort of the overarching uh, code of instruction, which I call caste, is, is directing us. And once you recognize that, then you, then you can, we need to tear up the script. We need to recognize first that there is a script to be torn up. And once you recognize that, then it allows you to not take it personally. This is programming. And if you've been programmed, then you can be unprogrammed. And I even, you know, I even, I pull out everything I can. I talk about the matrix, you know, um, right. Matrix, which I think is very instructive because what it says is that, you know, once you recognize that you are part of a pod that has been, that is not even real, that's been inserted upon you. And then once you recognize that, then you should want to be free of it. You should want to say, I don't want to be part of that. I mean, I want to be able to think Clearly, I want to be able to see people as they truly are. I want to be my fuller self. I want everyone around me to be their fuller selves. That would be the goal of all of this is to first see, you can't fix what you can't see. And that's the goal of this is to first be able to see it. Now, it does not fall on those who've been historically marginalized to fix all of this, mm-hmm. which is why I start the book with a quote from Einstein, you know, one of the smartest people who ever lived. Uh, he said, if the majority knew of the root of this evil, then the road to its cure would not be long. So you have to first know. I mean, people do not know. They're, they're most, most Americans have not had the luxury, the opportunity to really know our country's history, to know how we got to where we are. One of the responses that I get to the books, uh, both More Father, Sons and Cass, is that people say, I had no idea. I had no idea this happened in our country. I had no idea that for many people say, I know, had no idea it happened within my lifetime. I had no idea it happened in the state that I lived in or the town that I'm from. They had not, people are living in sundown towns and don't even know that they were living in sundown towns. There's a lot that people don't know. So that does not mean it solves everything, but let's at least start. Let's give a chance to people to say, learn the history and know how we got here. That's one of the reasons why another example I give, another metaphor in the book is what do you do when you go to, what happens when you go to the doctor's office? A lot of times the doctor, if you have an ailment that, is seems to be defying solution. The doctor will ask you not only your history, your medical history, but your parents' medical history. It's a long, long thing going through every system in your body, your parents and your grandparents even. What ran in your family's history? 
What could be going on with you? Sometimes before the doctor will even see you, you have to fill out all these forms. That's because what's happened before you matters. What's happened before you can be part of the diagnosis. What's happened before you is part of the reason that you're facing whatever you're facing now. And so that is part of what you do in diagnosing anything. And how much more important is it for our country to diagnose these many, many challenges that again are matters of life and death. We can see in these cases, I mean, in this one week that we've just come from, there was a person who, the young man in Kansas City, who was shot because he went, he rang the wrong doorbell. He is from what I would call a subordinated caste. He's African-American, he's black. Then just like the, the next day or two days later, there was a young white woman who was killed because the car she was in, they were looking for a house for wherever they were going to. And they backed in, they drove into the wrong driveway. And as they were backing out, someone came out and shot them and then she was killed. And then there was a case of the cheerleaders who got into the wrong car. So this, so what happens is it's often said that when the country catches a cold, black people catch pneumonia, that's, that's one thing that's said. But what the other turning it around is that you know, that what happens to those who are at the bottom of any caste system, those who are assigned at the very bottom of any caste system, becomes a canary in the coal mine. It spreads to everyone else. It does not contain itself to the one group. So everyone suffers as a result of what happens to those who are assigned to the, to the very bottom. This is, this is, this, it does not contain itself to the one group that might be seen as the target, the one group that's most vulnerable. It spreads because it becomes part of the the, the atmosphere, the air that we breathe. And so I say all this to say that that, that is why it's necessary to know what, how we got to where we are so that we could, can begin to fix it. Do you have any examples of how this might manifest like in workplaces? There's a lot of DEI work that is happening across this country. There is an examination that moves into tactical decision-making without the examination or with the majority of people perhaps in your workplace that don't understand the history that you just laid out for us. Yeah. So do you have any, any practical advice on this DEI work that is, is, is hoping to move us from um, injustice to justice, particularly in workspace? Yeah, I feel that what you're describing is what I sometimes will hear from people who, before even looking at the history, before even cracking open the book, they'll say, well, what can we do about it? Like, what can we do about it? Well, it's it, you, you can't fix what you have not looked at, you what you haven't understood. You have to understand it before you can begin fixing it. If you do a science experiment, you never just go straight to, okay, this is the solution. You have to understand the problem first. Sometimes more time is spent on describing what the problem is. Again, looking at, you know, when you go to the doctor, if there's some ailment, there are all these diagnostic tests that you have to take. They don't just start from the beginning. We think it's this and we're going to give you this pill. We're going to give you this. They have to do all this diagnostic in order to understand what is the problem? How do we get here? And the same that this applies to any structure, any system within the larger uh, infrastructure that we're living in, whether it's criminal justice, whether it's uh, healthcare, which is huge. I mean, we're looking at the the disparities in healthcare that are so extreme that the Black women's um, uh, uh, infant mortality rate for their children and the maternal mortality rate are so many times higher than they are for their white counterpart that it has raised the number for for the entire country. So the United States fares very poorly compared to our, uh, our peer nations when it comes to maternal health in general. It's a national health crisis that we're not recognizing um, and that's not getting nearly enough attention. I also wanna say, speaking of what we was, were mentioning before, um, class and income do not protect against the, the mortality rates that black women are facing when they um, have when they're either just given birth or their children, that the, the rate is much, much higher the, they do not fare well against their white counterparts. It is, it really is a national crisis. But when you're speaking about DEI and the the race to the in, instantaneous desire to just fix it without looking at the problem, it means that as for any other institution or any other system within our society, you have to look at how we got to where we are. And almost every institution has a history um, because segregation went on for so long and many, many institutions, many, many occupations have only recently, when I say recently, you know, in the long history of our country, 
Black people were not even permitted in many, many occupations until the 1960s. And that was by law, you know, to the 60s, you know, so we're not talking ancient history. We're, we're talking within the lifespan of some people alive today. Some of the people in many institutions that are uh, and companies that are doing uh, DEI work now, there are people in those institutions right now who might have been the first people of color or the first, you know, uh, the first black person to be in those institutions. Look at what they might have experienced as the first ones in those institutions. So this is not ancient history. And I believe that when you're doing this kind of work, looking at the history of one's own institution is where you have to begin, not end, but begin. Because you need to understand what has been the personality, what has been the character of the institution why did the institution bring in, you know, begin to integrate to begin with? Was it was it a by decree? Sometimes it was because there was a there was a lawsuit. Many many cases of lawsuit. Look at the history of how you got to where we you you happen to be before you you know sit down with a ten point plan when you haven't looked at how you got to where you are. I just think that that's one of the biggest mistakes that we all make because we we don't want to have to think about the history. We want to just fix it now. In our country, it took us 400 years to get to where we are. If you have companies and, you know, many, many companies are now recognizing a lot of banks and a lot of insurance companies are recognizing that they themselves and even some some uh, universities are recognizing that they themselves were part of the slave trade, that they were the ones insuring the enslaved people that they, you know, which were considered property, that they were the ones who were providing mortgages or loans to those people who were purchasing slaves. So there, this is a part of the history. And I think that if we if we wanna race to a, a solution without looking at the problem, then it's not going to end with an enduring um, resolution to these challenges we face. Right. I think the other piece about the strategy um, in some places, right, this is a generalization, is that they have one department, one person that is to lead them through this. And so what we're living in this caste system cannot be dismantled by a few people. Correct. Absolutely. One of the biggest challenges that we face with all of this is uh, sort of like what kind of what Einstein was saying, but I would I would add something to it. And that is people need to recognize <laughs> This is human nature. People need to recognize how the organization itself is suffering as a result of inequality. They need to recognize how they themselves as managers or as, you know, whatever they're trying to do, wherever their position may be, that they are being held back by this as much in their own way, not in the same way, but in their own way. And I, I give an example of, you know, in, in my own case, it's from the book where, um, when I was a national correspondent with the New York Times based in Chicago, and I was working on this story, a fairly routine story, in which I had to interview all these people, and I've been interviewing people all day. I, I called them in advance and let them know I'd be, and, and told them I was doing the story. They were all thrilled and excited to be in this, in this piece. So I had no problems at all, you know, with the interviews until I got to the last one. It was the end of the day, and I'd arrived to this establishment uh, a little early, and the person I was there to interview, who I called in advance, made the arrangements with, talked to on the phone, um, was not there. Uh, I was told by his assistant that I needed to, you know, just have a seat and just wait. He would be there shortly. And then minutes later, this man comes in. He's flustered. He's in a hurry. Um, he's trying to take off his coat. And the assistant tells me that's that's him. That's the man that, you know, you have the appointment with. And so I go up to him. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an, a journalist. I'm there to interview him. And he he waves me away and he said, you know, I, I don't have time to talk with you I, right now. I'm, I'm getting ready for a very important uh, uh, appointment. And I said, I, I think I'm I'm the appointment. I, I'm, I have an appointment with you. It's for 430. It's now after that time. And I'm the one that's supposed to interview you. And he said, how do I know that? I'm just thinking, well, we have an appointment. I talked with you yesterday. I, I told him, well, I'm Isabel Wilkerson with the New York Times. Uh, we have an appointment. We already passed the time. We, you know, we should be, we should be interviewing. He said, well, I'm going to have to see some ID. And I'm saying, I shouldn't have to show you ID. We had an appointment. I talked with you yesterday. I have my notebook. I have my pen. I'm here. No one else is here. We have an appointment. Clearly, you were ready for an appointment. Um, he said, well, I'll, I'll need to see some ID. So I showed him the ID. And he says, you don't have anything with the New York Times on? I said, well, I, I, I don't have any business cards. I've been working all day. I don't have any business cards. I said, but, but we, should, you know, we should be interviewing. I mean, we're now 
many minutes into what should be an interview, he says, he said, I'm going to have to ask you to leave because the New York Times will be here any minute. I'm going to have to ask you to leave. So I had to leave. Uh, I left and uh, I was flummoxed by it, uh, as anyone would be. I, you know, it turns out that I did not need him for the story. I was able to, I interviewed so many people. I had plenty to go with. It would have been nice to have him, but that, it wasn't necessary in the end. Um, I, uh, I went back and, you know, wrote the piece and it ran. Um, but the thing is that um, he is the one who lost out. He yeah. is, he wanted so badly to be in the New York Times that he asked the New York Times to leave. He did not expect the New York Times to be in this form. He did not expect the correspondent, the reporter from the New York Times to look like me. And therefore he asked me to leave and missed out on an opportunity that he wanted so badly he asked the person to leave. I ended up sending him, you know, I, I sent him a copy of the article after it ran with a business card that he had requested. And that's what I told him. Um, but who lost out in that? I mean, I was flummoxed. It was not a good experience, but I had my piece. I was able to do my job. I was able to get it done. So what I'm saying is companies, organizations, institutions need to recognize that this is harming them. How many times in a day could this exchange have been replicated even now because people have assumptions, stereotypes, and leap to conclusions and then miss out on opportunities that they desperately want and that could help their organizations, but they miss out because of this. Right. On the other yeah. hand, you know, even for someone who, so I'm from the group that's been marginalized. And so what, what effect does this have on the people who are marginalized in this group, in the organization? So this affects everyone. It affected me and but it affected me not in a good way but it affected him in an even worse way if you multiply this times hundreds of thousands of interactions and transactions and interchanges that that are misunderstood lost altogether um, end up with some uh you know bad feeling whatever it may be this is disruptive to the way an organization works so people need to recognize this could be affecting them without them even realizing it Right. And I guess my question with that is, so, so, so the people that are listening and saying, well, you know, that was just one bad actor. That was one bad actor in the play. <laughs> the rest of us don't act like that. I'm, I'm sure he did not, he did not see himself in that way. He saw himself as doing what was best for him to be able to get in the New York times, not realizing his own unconscious bias and blind spots is what I'm saying. He asked me to leave. Uh, why did he ask me to leave? Uh, it hurt him as much as it, it, in fact, more than it hurt me. Uh, I would, you know, that's the reason why um, I would say to people that, you know, again, I have all these, these metaphors that come to me. Uh, and one of them is that we, as a country, have a pre-existing condition and it affects all of us. Um, and if you have a pre-existing condition, you know, that something that runs in your family, if you think of our country as a big one, big family, we're all interconnected, whether we wish to see it that way or not, then, you know, if you have, um, if it's diabetes that runs in your family or hypertension that runs in your family, or alcoholism in your family, there's certain things that you do and certain things that you learn you need to be vigilant about. And you can never let, the, you know, let that vigilance go. You've always got to be on the alert for these things. If you, you know, if, if alcoholism runs in, in the family, then you have to be hypervigilant about that. You don't say, if people have, if someone has been, has experienced uh, the disease of alcoholism, you don't say, okay, I was really good this past year, so I can have a drink now. You, 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 you recognize what the pre-existing condition is and you act accordingly. We as a nation have a pre-existing condition and none of us escape this pre-existing condition that we have inherited. That means that we all have to be vigilant. We all have to recognize that we all breathe this polluted air and could be exposed to this and, and have been exposed to the unconscious biases that run rampant. And it's, it, you know, the thing about unconscious bias is that people who are even from marginalized groups absorb the same unconscious bias. Unconscious bias is seen as being, one of the latest numbers is that 80% of white Americans have unconscious bias, anti-black bias. And, but a third of black people have uh, un unconscious uh, anti-black bias. Why is it? That's not because people are good or bad. It means that everyone is absorbing the messaging 
that runs throughout the society from serial commercials to billboards as to who fits where in society, all the stereotypes and assumptions that we all are exposed to. So we all have to be vigilant to this. This is not anything that, that we can escape. And so that's why it's not about one bad apple. And for and also one bad apple, then what we know what happens is yeah, it ruins the bunch. And yeah. it is part of the structure. It's systemic. Can you afford to even have that one bad apple? What, what, what company, what institution can afford even that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question for people to think on. As we close, did you have a vision for how you hoped people would to take from CAST, the actions maybe that would come from the book that you so brilliantly written? Did you have, did you have a hope for, for where that would lead? You know, it took so much out of me just to write this as with the warmth of the suns, I mean, I, you put it out in the world um, and you hope that it will find readers and boy, that this book found readers. Um, and then you almost can't see where it could go because once you put it out of the world, it's no longer yours anymore. It, it belongs to anyone who reads it and absorbs it and, uh, and takes it into their heart and into their spirit. And so what I really want is for people to recognize the ways in which we as individuals are participating in a system that we did not create and that we may not even be aware of because of so much of this is endemic and subconscious and to recognize the ways that we may be harming others without even realizing it. That would be, you know, one of the things that I, many, many things I want. I mean, I want it to, I want it to end. I want us to, I want that script to be torn up, thrown out, and I want everybody to be their, their best self. I want everyone to recognize that we do not have to be limited to the square, the square pegs that society puts us in, you know, the idea that um, men are the only ones, males are the only ones that are good at STEM and math and women are not, all those things that, that control and restrict us. But then also to recognize the ways in which we may be harming others without even realizing it and ultimately harming ourselves because it means that we are not reaching out to and opening ourselves to um, the beauty of human interaction with people who, who closing ourselves off to people who could actually change our lives, lives because we are not seeing them for who they really are. You know, I really truly believe that, you know, the flap of the butterfly wing that causes a bit of a stir on the other side of the Atlantic and then goes all the way over to the other side of the ocean and could actually create a hurricane. It has to start with each one of us. What can each one of us do to recognize what we have been exposed to, examine our own history, our own biases, what have we been told? Like, like you said before about the ancestors who told us, you know, do what you're told, be safe, do the kinds of things that mean, ultimately they were saying for us to be able to survive, but also they were saying for us to, um, to kind of fold into the caste system without, without, you know, with love, they were saying it, we want you to, we want you to be safe. But we need to expand as well. We need to be our fuller, true selves. We need to be, everyone needs to be their true, true full, full self. And that, was, that would be my ultimate goal. If people were their fuller, true selves and could self-actualize and find a sense of contentment and joy uh, in their self-actualization, then I would like to believe, maybe this is pie in the sky, but I would like to believe that so much of this rancor and envy and resentment, we would be able to transcend it because everyone was being who they were intended to be. That's what the idea of breaking caste is. It's like, be who you're supposed to be. Be your fullest, best self. And if you're that, then you're not looking at others, at someone else with, with resentment and anger and rancor and envy because you're too busy being who you're supposed to be. And that would be my ultimate goal. Thank you so much. Miss Wilkerson, cast warmth of other sons. If you haven't read it, you should read it. It took a lot out of you to write it. I am certain it took a lot out of me to read it, but I'm so glad that I did. To disconnect it from emotion in, in your personal history, you probably cannot, but to remove it from personalizing it, right? To protecting, defending, right? To, to understand that we all have a role in making the world bigger and, and, and different to unlearning what we have learned so that we can live our full selves. 
is, is the ultimate victory that I think we can accomplish together. So thank you so much. I appreciate you and your work. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And that's Isabel Wilkerson and our host, Shonda Smith-Baker. To explore more insightful conversations and stay updated on Shonda Smith-Baker's work, visit our new website at smithbaker.co. That's smithbaker.co.